Afternoon, it's a very good morning to you. Lionheart Radio 107.3 FM, community radio for the Annick area, Richard Dale, and the one and only Daniel Mumby. Good morning. Um, you're giving me ever more emphatic introductions this yes, at the moment. Thank uh, you very much. I'm going to have to fiddle around with your levels again. Okay, well, how about this? If I kind of That's see. much better. Sorry. That's much better. Yeah. I'm a bit worse for wear this morning, but what's we'll on? Oh, what have you been up to? Well, I was at a party last night. Uh, it was a fancy dress, into, and the theme was Christmas films, so I thought I should make an effort. You went to Scrooge. Well, I didn't. <laughs> I, the thing is, I had very little time, so I sort of went as a street urchin with a sign around my neck saying, I would have come in costume, but Scrooge took all my money. <laughs> That's a good one. I like it. It went down surprisingly well. Great. Should we have a look at what's going on locally? Okay. Uh, Annick, just the one film to tell you about, but a good one is on tonight, uh, and this afternoon, actually. This afternoon at one o'clock tonight at 7.30, it is Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Which is one of the best films of the year. I think that it's not quite up there with Thomas Alfredson's debut, Let the Right One In, which if you haven't seen, you really, really, really need to see. But it's a very intelligent, weighty, atmospheric spy thriller. Terrific performances by all the cast, but particularly by Gary Oldman and Tom Hart. I think if you're a fan of the TV series, you might have mixed feelings about certain bits where they've sort of uh, curtailed it or pigeonholed things a little just to move the plot along and get the whole thing into two hours. But if you put that to one side, it's a fantastic achievement. And you filled in time very well. Cause I wasn't conscious. Something fairly it. important I'd forgotten to do there. Oh, is it? <laughs> yes. Uh, right, up at Berwick, um, one film to tell you about and then a few to look forward to, I think. Um, first of all, tonight at uh, the Maltings, 8 o'clock, it is Real Steel. Which is all right. I mean, it's sort of... This is how you make a film about robots hitting each other. I mean, it's Hugh Jackman and, uh, and a, a child actor who's pretty good. I can't remember his name. And they, you know, he's a boxing promoter, but he lost his job as a result of uh, it becoming entirely robots hitting each other rather than people hitting each other. And they build a robot and it takes on and they win the championship. You know, it's it's predictable as anything you like. You can sort of drive a bus through a couple of the plot holes, but it's enjoyable. So if you've got young boys under the age of 12, I think they'll really go along with it. Sounds. Particularly if you see it in IMAX, although I don't think Beric has got those sorts of facilities. No, I don't think it does. Um, and then two anniversary films that they're showing. First of all, next Friday, uh, 8.30, is the Rocky Film Party, it being the 35th anniversary of the first Rocky that I hadn't appreciated, had won loads of Oscars. Well, yeah, it won Best Picture, famously, and there uh, was... Best a... Director, Best Film Editing. Yes, I mean, uh, I think the second Rocky is actually better, and, you know, in terms of the Oscars, I think that Network was robbed that year, because Network was clearly the better film. But, no, the first two Rocky films are both pretty decent. Now, before they sort of got bogged down in sort of cliches with the third and fourth one, before Mr. T came along. So, yeah, I think if you haven't seen Rocky on the big screen, it'll be quite an experience. And then, on, 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 on... Here we go. Come on, little webby thing, go well. <laughs> uh, Thursday, <laughs> Thursday the 22nd of December at 7.30, It's a Wonderful Life's 65th anniversary. Is it really 65? Could James you... Stewart. Yes. When he looked young. <laughs> he still looks pretty young when, he do, when he's doing Vertigo, though, in fairness, although he's sort of playing more crotchety. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, then, you know, what are you doing with yourself? I mean, Frank Capra's best film, one of Jimmy Stewart's best performances. I mean, it gets a reputation for being sort of the schmaltz capital of Hollywood, in the sense that, you know, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, and it does end with the biggest group hug in the history of cinema. But... It's not actually that much of an easy ride, because it is about a man trying to kill himself. Right. So I would say, no, it's, it's worth checking out, and don't go in expecting yes. an easy ride. So the Maltings debate, and you can do this one online if you want, is should they show it in the original black and white, or should they show the colourised version? N no question for me, it's black and white. Elvis Costello once said that um, colourisation was like giving your kids crayons and asking them to draw over the TV. So, no, colourisation 
of particularly if it's a wonderful life is a heresy it was made in black and white it was shot in black and white so it should stay in black and white onto the top 10 i think yes I think so. no just no it's absolutely clear yes. no because yeah. there are different ways of lighting a film in monochrome than to yeah. color so. yeah that's fine yeah um, Daniel Craig, probably not at his finest, at uh, number 10 in Dreamhouse. Yeah, I mean, we, when we reviewed this about a week or two ago, we said that Jim Sheridan tried to get his name taken off this, and it's not hard to see why. I mean, I don't think it's a horrendous film by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the problem is, you know, it's a very generic plot that, you know, they have so little confidence in it that they give away the big twist about halfway in, which is a classic no-no if you're doing sort of ghostly thrillers. It doesn't hang together even in the sort of the ripe, knowingly ridiculous way that Shutter Island did. That, and uh, I think that both Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz look a bit embarrassed to be in it. So I think everyone sort of knew it was bad when they were making it. Well, another one that's not gone down quite as well as it might have done is John Hurt and Mickey Rourke with Immortals yeah, at number nine. Yeah, I mean, as I keep saying, the problem is it doesn't know whether it wants to be sort of 12 certificate fluff for the, you know, the, the young boys or full-on blood and guts 18 certificate stuff. It's, you no know, Tom Singh has completely misjudged it and it's very dull. One that's doing rather better, critics and audiences alike, is 50-50 at number eight. Yeah, it's a surprisingly intelligent, well-handled comedy. It certainly doesn't fall... It's, no, it's a comedy about cancer which doesn't fall into the trap of Hollywood illnesses of getting people to be glamorous right up until they die. Um, I don't think it's entirely perfect. I think that some of the female characters get dealt a bit of a duff hand because it is essentially a bromance, but it does pass the time and it's quite funny. Jamie Bell is at number seven, The Adventures of Tintin. It's hung around for ages, hasn't it? It's doing, doing very well. It is doing very well. And no, I like Jamie Bell very much. Like I said, I think the story is a little bit stodgy in the sense I, can, I don't think you needed to do Crab with the Golden Claws as well as the Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure because there's enough going on in those plots yeah. anyway. And also, no, no Professor Calculus is a bit of a disappointment. But the motion capture is the best I've seen. Set pieces are very good. So, no, not first-rate Spielberg, but good fun. A who's Who of British Filmware at uh, number six, My Weekly. With Marilyn, yeah, um, it's you know it's pretty good fluff, basically. You know, it's a costume drama of famous people playing famous people. I like Eddie Redmayne very much, not just because of Savage Grace, but he's also very good in Black Death. I think Kenneth Branagh is thoroughly enjoying himself playing a rather mean-spirited, lip-curling Laurence Olivier, because you no, know, which is you no know, not entirely accurate, because Olivier was a little bit more cheerful than that, even at that stage of his career. I think that Michelle Williams does her best with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, playing Marilyn Monroe is frankly a thankless task because this you can easily get too measured for it to seem genuine. So if you if you attempt to approach it as sort of light-headed candy floss, then it works very well. Right. At number five, The Thing. Which is rubbish, basically. It's you know, purporting to be a prequel to the John Carpenter film, which we yes. talked about about six months ago, and uh, which I love. Um, the What it effectively does is it does exactly the same story as the Carpenter film, but with all the special effects changed into CGI and all the substance about Cold War paranoia taken out, it's boring, it's incoherent, and it's just pointless. I mean, the thing in the 80s version was pretty much everything you needed from a film, so why do you need to do it again? Shall we have a quick homage to the original? Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. I feel much better now. <laughs> yes. 
Even the uh, even the trailer makes you feel scared, doesn't it? Yes, can you put that blood testing kit away? You're making me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number four, it is uh, Hugo. Now, I was, this is the new film from Martin Scorsese, which we reviewed, I think it was Film of the Week last week. And right. going in at number four for a Scorsese film, would you say that's underperforming? Sounds like it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, because it hasn't taken that much money. That may be something to do with the backlash. Well, if you look at what's at the top three, though, there's quite a bit of sort of kiddiware competition I, I suppose but then this is a user yeah. certificate film so this is as much kiddiware as anything else so I think I'm surprised that it hasn't done better but I do think it's Scorsese returning to form after a period of uncertainty because there was that thing you know, for ages and ages where Martin Scorsese was nominated for the Oscar and then didn't yeah. win and then he finally won for The Departed which was by no means his best film and after winning you sort of got the impression of okay what do I do next and you now he made Shutter Island which was very good in a sort of ropey cheesy deliberately flimsy way but other than that he sort of floundered around with a couple of documentaries and he was you know, involved in re-releasing some of his work and you just got the sense of okay Marty that's nice but you need to sort of move on now and i think this is him moving on it's it's clearly a film which exhibits his love of cinema i think it works for both children and adults on the same level i like um the child actors asa butterfield and clay moretz a lot so it's no out of the child friendly stuff in the top 10 it's the one to see at number three twilight saga Breaking Dawn Part 1. No, That's I've been around a long time as well, hasn't it? Three or four weeks, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I dare say it'll hang around till the other side of Christmas. Uh, it depends how much money the new Sherlock Holmes film takes when it comes out uh, end of next week. I think it's a bit flawed. I know I wanted more of the body horror stuff. I don't think that the director quite got the handle on that material in the way that someone David, like David Cronenberg would have done. Um, but you have to admire the fact that a film which has a female protagonist, even if it's a female protagonist that you don't think is particularly engaging, it's a film with a female protagonist that's hitting its target audience and offers you know, an alternative role model to women than sort of wandering around in hot pants waiting to get laid. Number two, it is Happy Feet 2. A bit of a star list for this one as well. Robin Williams, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Not so popular with the critics, though. No, I mean, it's totally innocuous. I wish that George Miller would get back to doing something more sort of low-budget and edgy. I mean, no, having sort of seen the quality of this, I'm sort of more looking forward now to the fourth Mad Max film than I was a couple of years ago. I know. It is incoherent. There, are no, there is no real story. The musical numbers are a bit odd. It looks pretty, so if you've got nothing else to do, then fine, but... It's not, not much excuse otherwise. And at number one, it's Arthur Christmas. Yeah, which, you know, it's, it's hitting its target audience. I don't think it's up there with Curse of the Were-Rabbit, but there are enjoyable things in it, and I like James McAvoy quite a lot. Right, so let's pick up on the recommendation, shall we? Okay, well, Hugo, definitely. Um, My Week with Marilyn, if you want something sort of light and frothy, and uh, other than that, well, I think most people have seen Tintin now, so 50-50. Right, cult film after this. Radio. Now, when we were doing the top ten, we were talking about The Thing and the original of The Thing, which is all about interesting creatures, mm. and our cult film is on that theme as well, isn't it? Yeah, to some extent. Um, we're talking about Event Horizon this week, a 1997 sci-fi horror directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who uh, actually hails from the Northeast, so it's quite fitting oh, that we're doing excellent. that. excellent. He's born in, I think uh, his IMD page says, uh, born in Newcastle upon Tyne, at any rate, right. so. I don't know how much he works in here, though. Uh, he's most famous for uh, helming the Resident Evil series, the adaptation of the video games, because he directed the first and fourth instalments and then was either involved at a writing or a production level at the others. And that's how he met... Uh, those films starred Mila Jovovich, who has since uh, become married to him. Oh, right. so sort of, yes. In the same way as Kate Beckinsale's husband directs the Underworld films, yeah. of which she gets to run around in a latex costume. <laughs> all the time. You can sort of see why they yeah. keep making these films. Um, at a glance, it's not that glittering a career he's had, because he made his debut in 94. 
four with a film called Shopping, starring Jude Law. Yeah. And Jude Law's first screen appearance, playing a sort of street thug where they go joyriding around. Um, he made the first Mortal Kombat film. You know, he's made loads of video game adaptations. Um, the remake of Death Race 2000, which was the Roger Corman film from the 70s, the remake starred Jason Statham. Most recently, he made The Three Musketeers in 3D. Most controversially, from my point of view, he made a film in the late 90s called Soldier, which he bills as a sidequel to Blade Runner. So dangerous. Side call. Yes, yeah, sort of spirit. What's, what's one of them? Um, well, do you know what a spiritual sequel is? Which is sort of um, same, different characters, yeah. but same kind of story. Yeah. It's a bit like that. It takes place in the same universe as Blade Runner, but set on a different planet and different characters. Yeah. It's not very good. And now anything that has that close a relationship to Blade Runner. It's dangerous territory, especially for me, because I love that yeah. film. Um, he made this film almost by accident. He chose to make Event Horizon after the production on Soldier was delayed by about 12 months because of yeah. casting difficulties. And, you know, I say this with no great relish, but this is his only good film. I mean, there are individual things in the Resident Evil series or the Musketeers films which are perfectly passable in a sort yeah. of in-one-ear-and-out-the-other sort of way, but this is his only memorable work. And it does suggest that he is, or at least once was, capable of making something which actually has a story and actually has characters and actually has you know, a, yeah. an ability to grip. Filmed on a budget of $60 million, so we're talking sort of Scott Pilgrim territory. Obviously yeah. not adjusting for inflation, so yeah. it's probably slightly less. Took about $27 million worldwide. It did go briefly to the, the box office number one in the UK, but it flopped pretty much elsewhere. Another happy studio boss, then. Yeah, I mean, there, in this case, uh, unlike Scott Pilgrim, you actually had sort of pre-production post-production scuffles, because what happened was Paul, Tom Paul, I almost called him Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul W.S. Anderson delivered a, a cut uh, for the studio, which was 130 minutes long and was full of sort of flesh-ripping, hell-razor-ish violence, but they were pushing for an R rating. <laughs> so yes. uh, they said, no, we want this to be suitable for 16-year-olds, can you cut half an hour off? And he, they spent sort of months and months arguing about it, yeah. eventually he did. That half-hour of footage got lost, and then um, the film no, didn't take as well as they thought it would. So basically, when uh, the fans read about this extra footage that existed, people who actually went to see the film, and no, like me to a certain extent, who really liked it, and then yeah. uh, when they released um, the DVD cut in 2006 with the sort of the low-quality work print with all the stuff put back in, yeah. it sort of gained a cult following because of this sort of mystery surrounding all the footage that was taken out. Cause it was too <laughs> Interesting. Sort of, yeah. yeah. So no, we're, uh, no, I'll make no bones about it. It's an 18-certificate horror film in the manner of Clive Barker's Hellraiser. So you yeah. know pretty much what you're going to get. The plot is, it's set in the year 2060 uh, and begins with the crew of the deep space vessel, the Lewis and Clark, um, and they're travelling to the outskirts of uh, Neptune to investigate the reappearance of a vessel called the Event Horizon, which is a ship that had mysteriously vanished off the outskirts of Neptune a few years ago and has suddenly come back. Um, on board the ship, amongst others, you have um, a, a series of characters, Captain Miller, played by a pre-matrix Lawrence Fishburne, yeah. um, Lieutenant Commander D. DJ played by Jason Isaacs before he was you known Lucius Malfoy and you know, yeah. this he actually speaks with a slight Scottish accent which is quite <laughs> interesting. Uh, Lieutenant Stark played by Jolie Richardson whom I really like was most yeah. recently in Nip Tuck and a uh, Dr. Weir played by Sam Neill. Um, he's on board because he is the man who built the Event Horizons uh, this prototype uh, thing called a gravity drive which enabled the Event Horizon to effectively jump between one between two points in space effectively faster than light a bit like um, the infinite impro improbability drive in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah. but nowhere near as frivolous because it doesn't involve a, a whale and a bowl of petunias. <laughs> <laughs> but 
um, so they've, they've gone out there to basically find the ship because when they've tested the gravity drive it mysteriously disappeared and everyone thought the crew had been killed and then suddenly it's come back so they yeah. say, okay take Dr. Weir out there see if he can find out what's going on so they get to the event horizon to find it absolutely deserted no everything in the inside is frozen there's no sign of the crew all the rooms are empty they find these strange garbled recordings in Latin oh. and then they sort of try to sort of piece together what's happened and take the event horizon home but while they're spending time on the ship they keep seeing mysterious sort of apparitions um, some of which are sort of characters from their past sort of coming back to haunt them and eventually oh. it emerges that the ship has become conscious and won't let them leave Ooh. so not, not you know, I mean you're sort of going oh in a sort of slightly frivolous way but it's, it's a, <laughs> sorry no no it's it, but <laughs> it, it is no it is quite a spooky setup you have to admit yes I mean it was but the truth is that it was when it started out as a high it was a high concept film in the sense that it was pitched on a sentence before they had any script yeah. and it was pitched as the shining in space yeah so again you know pretty much you're going to get but in terms of understanding how event horizon works and its place in the sort of the sci-fi horror canon the easiest way to do it is to look at it in relation to how the Alien series panned out, because, you know, you got f notwithstanding Ridley Scott's upcoming prequel of sorts called Prometheus or the Alien vs. Predator crossovers, which Paul W.S. Anderson was also involved with, uh, you've got the four Alien films, you've got Ridley Scott's original, which is extraordinary. I mean, I really think that that is one of the greatest films ever made. Aliens by James Cameron, which, you know, takes the whole thing and does it as yeah. an action film and does it pretty well. I mean, I think it loses its way a little bit towards the end and it's a bit too long, but otherwise it's very good. Alien 3 by David Fincher, which you know, again, was messed around by the studios, and uh, there are various different cuts that exist. He's more or less disowned it, but I think it's very underrated. And then you get Alien Resurrection, directed by the guy who made Amelie, which is a bit pants. Um, <laughs> not because he's pants, no, but he just, you know, you don't take a guy who's, who's famous for sort of frothy confection stuff in French yeah. comedy and make him do a sort of sci-fi horror film with Renona Wilder wearing boxing gloves for some strange <laughs> reason. So... As the Alien franchise kind of became less and less about horror and more about sort of gribblies wandering around in space and being yeah. shot at, you sort of got the sense of, well, we're never going to see another sci-fi horror film which has got that sort of ability to terrify and actually use blood and guts in a way yeah. of actually psychological horror rather than just shock yeah. value. And then Event, and if Event Horizon and Alien Resurrection came out within a couple of months of each other, and... Although, you no, know, there are individual moments in, in Alien Resurrection which are interesting, like seeing sort of Brad DeRiff as, an, as a deranged scientist with, a, the, with the worst ponytail you've ever seen in your life, it's, it's in the end, in Alien Resurrection is very flat, whereas Event Horizon does go right back to that sort of late 70s, early 80s canon of sort of the of Alien yeah. and The Shining, and go a little further back to Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris. It's, it's for all the, the sort of the gory trappings of it, and all the sort of the slightly stupid stuff that happens in the last half hour it is at heart a fairly smart film which is about sort of catharsis and about yeah. demons in both the literal demonical sense and in sort of the past catching up with you sort of way i mean there are clear references to the alien series throughout right down to the design of the event horizon because it's a sort of long stretched out ship with a sort of two big bits at the end and then a corridor in the middle yeah and the actual front of the event horizon looks like you know the xenomorph's head where it's sort of curved and yes, stretching yeah. up to a pinnacle no you can and you can sort of imagine the jaws coming out <laughs> it, it, yes. so that's clearly an homage you know paul ws anderson's clearly a fan of the original and like so many of the alien ripoffs from the 80s and 90s the interior of the event horizon it's blue collar space it's not the sort of 2001 vision where it's all sort of gleaming white yeah. and uh, shiny and sort of uh, you know people talking on telephones it's sort of it's grimy it's rusty it's freezing cold people running around in boiler suits and lots <laughs> of shadows which is what you like in a horror film like i said the two things that, are, that it's closest to i mean there are big references to the shining because it's the idea of 
a build a building or a man-made structure which has taken on sort of characteristics because you know depending on your interpretation of the shining i suppose the easy way to, when you saw the shining how many times have you seen it um i think only once only once yes. when you got to the ending with the photograph what was your reaction Oof. i mean what what did it make you think did you think because there's you can either think I don't know what that means, or actually Jack Nicholson was here all the way and it was going to just hit, it was just history sort of repeating itself. I can't remember now. Okay, um, well. This wasn't one of my favourite films. So really? Was, uh, yeah, sort of, not one of the hosts I particularly remember. Okay, well basically, the, depending on how you view the ending of The Shining, um, you'll either look at Event Horizon and think, no, it's, it's all in the mind of the characters and it is yeah. someone just going mad, or you'll actually think, this ship has actually got a, a sort of, um, a sentience, that's the word yeah. I was saying, a sentience of its own, it's actually, it's embodying the crew in the same yeah. way that the Overlook Hotel is sort of the past creeping up on Jack Nicholson's character yeah. and either sending him mad or sort of pulling him back into the past because there's a whole argument yeah. that Jack Nicholson's character has been there before and he's not told anyone and all that sort yeah. of thing. So, there is, the reference to The Shining comes in the fact that, you know, you have, you know, the ship is effectively the Overlook Hotel with all these sort of this dark history surrounding the previous crew and as the existing crew sort of wander around, they they sort of echo and replicate the steps of the others. So yeah. you have, for instance, Jason Isaac's character called DJ, whose uh, main job is to sort of go through all the garbled ship's log and see if he can find out what happens. And when they first arrive at the Event Horizon, he finds um, a recording in which someone's going, Liberate me, which ah. is the Latin for help me. Yes. And then as the film goes on, he starts to decipher it and it becomes Liberate tutte me ex inferis. Save mm. yourselves from hell. Ah, so you know right. what you're going to get. Yeah. So there's there's the shining stuff in that. There's also big references to um, Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris, a Russian film from the early 70s, which was remade uh, about nine years ago with George Clooney and Natasha McKellen, which is a scientist on a space station in the middle of nowhere, yeah. above this planet called Solaris, who, which has a strange sort of psychotropic effect on him, and he keeps imagining his dead wife. Mm. And that film ends with him sort of going down to the planet, which has replicated his vision of what Earth was like, and it's the idea of I know that this world isn't real, but I almost don't care because I can be with the people because <laughs> yeah. I can be with the people I love yeah. again. And there are big moments throughout the film in which basically all the sort of the dark secrets of the Lewis and Clark's crew. So, for instance, the fact that um, Sam Neill's wife killed herself because he was spending so much time designing the yeah. gravity drive in the first place. The fact that Captain Miller once had to let one of his crew members die because you know, there was a fire in liquid oxygen and it was you know, it yeah. went horribly wrong. So he keeps seeing the sort of charred remains of that guy coming around the corners. Dr. Do I almost said Dr. Grant because of Jurassic Park, but Dr. Weir yeah. sees images of his sort of wife wandering around with bloodshot eyes and, and cut wrists and so forth. I mean, it's, it's, it is no, full on, yeah. but it's done in a sort of very ghost house manner because there's a moment in the film where Dr. Weir has gone into the bowels of the ship and it's all these endless banks of computers and microprocessors to fix the gravity drive to try and get it working yeah. again. And all the lights start sort of flickering on and off in that sort of haunting-esque way. Yeah. And then he sees his wife's face come right up next to him and he goes off into a vision about her lying in a bath. And now it's, 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 on the surface, it, it can just feel like a sort of gory, gratuitous thing, but actually if you let it play out, it, it does yeah. go into that whole sort of don't look now end of horror where it is, it is about grief, it is about regret, yeah. it is about, you know, what if, basically, and when we come onto the new releases, we'll talk about Another Earth, which touches on those sorts yeah. of themes. Um, you have at the centre of the film a 
a really uh, two very good performances. On the one hand, you've got Lawrence Fishburne as Captain Miller. I mean, Fishburne does gravitas very, very well. I mean, obviously, he's Morpheus in the Matrix films, so, you know, you have to have gravitas in order to play Morpheus because yeah. he's, the, he's the anchor of the Matrix yeah, right. Um But what Captain Miller does is that he's that sort of blend of, on the one hand, he's like the, the soldiers in James Cameron's Aliens of sort of gung-ho, let's just go in and kill this thing. I don't care if it's got brains because I've got <laughs> yeah. guns. But on the other hand, he becomes more discerning and he learns how to sort of outwit the ship and trick it into blowing itself up and that yeah. sort of thing so he he anchors the film in terms of the viewer's intelligence at the other end of it you've got a sort of barnstorming performance by sam neill who now we tend to think of as being sort of you know jurassic park and more recently yeah. he was in the tudors but actually he has a long history of you know being in horror films and he, he like many horror specialist actors or he, he sort of he plays it completely straight for a point but as the film gets on you realize that actually he knows all the references coming through this and he understands yeah. the horror mechanics so while what he's doing might seem derivative he's actually very smart i mean you have to think back he started out his career as damien in omen three you know the film which famously ends with christ coming back to <laughs> earth to defeat the devil and he handles himself pretty well he's also in john carpenter's in the mouth of madness where you know it's it's the pirandello thing where he plays a stephen king-esque author who discovers at the end of the film that his whole life has been a film and then there's yeah. that shot of him laughing into insanity as he watches his life play out on the screen but in this you know he starts off sort of fairly fairly sort of calm fairly understated explaining how this this gravity drive can cause a ship to jump between two points in space and he does that by taking one of the crewmates nude posters off the wall folding it in half and putting pinpricks through it's like we well, do not not do that please that that's a playboy original <laughs> Um, but then as he goes on and he sees these visions of his wife and there's a moment in, in when he's in the gravity drives bay and um, sort of he screams and the camera sort of pans yeah. out and then it cuts to black and then the next time you see him he's sort of got scars all over his face and his eyes have been torn out and that sort of thing. I mean it, it is grisly. Yeah. I will say that and I can understand you sort of on the way that I'm sort of talking about the horror you're not wanting to see this immediately. <laughs> but the point is that in the same way as Although Clive Barker's Hellraiser is more full-on and much more difficult in places, the point is that the gore is justified because it's a, it's, it's a metaphor, yeah. it's a symbolism of, you know, in this case, it's a ship that's gone through hell. Yeah. Because that's the basic idea of, in going between these two points of space, the event horizon has gone outside of the known universe, it's brought back this great evil which is playing on the fears of all yeah. the crew members, and... Taken literally, you could, you know, drive a, a bus through all the plot holes thinking, okay, well, how, no, the gravity drive is eventually creating an artificial black hole. How does that work? And, uh, you know, how come everyone isn't dead as a result of all this? I'd be, you'd never watch any sci-fi movie, would you? If, uh, or a space-based movie, if you got bothered about the... Yes, I mean, but the, the, what I was <laughs> the about... Dodgy, the dodgy technical bits. Yes, but <laughs> the, point, well, the point I was going to make was that, in the end, all of that, all of those little yeah. questions are just surface mechanics. Yeah. The actual important yeah. stuff is what those represent, and what they represent is, you can't hide from your past. Yeah. And, no, it, it does it in a sort of, it will violently catch up with you sort of way, but no, in terms of substance, it does handle that stuff rather well. In terms of the tone of Event Horizon, it's sort of two-thirds of a good film, because the first hour when they're actually on the ship and it is about... It is effectively doing a, a, a ghost house film yeah. of sort of spooky corridors and strange mm -hmm. things going on with a little bit of gore here and there. Yeah. It, it does handle itself very atmospherically and you do find yourself getting very creeped out. I mean, there is, there is a moment in... Uh, 
early on in the film when they're going into sort of hypersleep and they go into these sort of isolation tanks, a bit like um, the isolation tanks in Ken Russell's Altered States, where it's William Hurt lying in sort yeah. of a certain amount of water with electrodes in his head and he's sort of experiencing these strange visions. And Dr. Grant, it goes inside his head and he starts having a nightmare about, um, about these strange... You know, creatures emerging and he starts to drown and then he yeah. sort of has to push the emergency release button and gets out and he's you know, a bit of a wreck. So that's a bit of a good one. And also um, things like, there's a big reference to Don't Look Now where one of the other lieutenants, played by Kathleen Quinlan, sees um, her child that she had lost when she was sort of five or six, yeah. when he was five or six, in standing in the bay of the gravity drive, you know, because it's an apparition created by the event horizon, sort of calling out to her. And she sort of wanders forward and then falls to her death below because uh, he sort of tricks yeah. her. But it's that sort of thing of the memory manipulating you and yeah. it's, it's tricking you into, I mean, I can sort of talk about this to death, but it's, it's you know, it, it does work. So for the first hour, it does that very well. By the time you get to the third act, when they're effectively saying, okay, we're going to blow the ship up, we're going to get back on the Lewis yeah. car, but then Dr. Weir gets possessed and saying, you know, you're never going to leave. <laughs> and there's a wonderful line in it where um, Lawrence Fishburne says, you know, Dr. Weir, come on, we've got to get home. But I am home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's, and it does. After that, it, there are moments in which Event Horizon does descend into sort of stupid action movie cliches. There is a yeah. moment where one of the um, the secondary members of the crew has been blown out into space by um, an explosion on the Lewis and Clark, which he's tried to fix. And in order to get back, he sort of um, blows his air take and sort of manages to power himself <laughs> back, despite the fact that he'd be running out of air. So yeah. That's pushing it a little bit, and, I and there's no sort of symbolic undertone yeah. to that, so you can't really sort of uh, put up with that too much. And, you know, the ending of it where, you know, um, Jolie Richardson is rescued and she sees the vision of Dr. Weir and then the yeah. ship's doors sort of close by themselves, and it, you can either think, okay, that's fine, or, oh, not again, because it is a very <laughs> yeah. cliched way to do it. But I think if you go with, the f if you sort of give the film the, the amount of time that it needs to sort of sum up, it does just about hang together as a pretty decent and fairly substantial sci-fi horror. It is pretty gory. Yeah. So if you're not of the faint heart, then it's not the, it's certainly not the first, it's not the natural point of call for you. But it's actually, no, it's a very good midnight movie. It's one of the first 18 certificates that I remember watching, and it did have a very sort of, it, it's a good 18 certificate yeah. film to start with, because it, on, on the one hand, it's quite full on, but on the other hand, it does actually make you think while it's freaking you out. Yeah. And, I mean, if, if you don't want to see sort of, you know, blood all over the place, then I suggest you stick with The Shining. Yeah. But... No, compared to what the Alien series was churning out at the same time, it is much more substantial. I think it's on a par with Alien 3 in the sense that it is a bit of a mess in places and it does result to cliché when it doesn't really need to. But in the moments when it works, it's surprisingly smart. Good. Let's take a break. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. On to the new releases, then. Um, we're forgetting something about... Oh, yes, next week. Yeah, next week we were intending yes, to I have... Yes, I forgot that. Yeah, we were intending on having this as a sort of two-hour bonanza with uh, Paul Young and Tom Wilkinson, but sadly neither of them are going to be available. But, no, they've got good excuses. So we will do uh, an hour and a half's worth next week from 10.30 to 12, looking back at... Um, no, looking at new, new Year's releases, looking back on the year, and our cult film will be Whistled Down the Wind. Which should be good. Which, is, for my money, is better than It's a Wonderful Life, so building it up. Right, we will look forward to that indeed. Shall we do the new releases I now? think we should. Right, and if you were a fan of Shrek, 
and how could you not be, then you will love Puss in Boots, no yeah, doubt. Absolutely. It's the spin-off or prequel to the Shrek series following um, the character of Puss in Boots, played by uh, Antonio Banderas. Which was, he did so well. I, I really love um, Antonio Banderas, of course. He was yes. recently in The Skin I Live in, the new Pedro Almodovar film, which if you haven't seen, that is bonkers as anything. Um, directed by Chris Miller, who um, co-directed the third Shrek film, and um, which was not very good, um, but also more to the point, he directed uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs uh, two years ago, which is sort of, a, if David Lynch ever made a kid's film, that's how it would work out. It's, it's a film in which someone manages to turn, to find a way to turn water into food and has a climax featuring someone being chased by giant chickens, which is, I mean, it sounds completely <laughs> insane and it is. Also yes. has a great performance in it by Mr. T as a police officer. Um, so so it takes things back to before the events of Shrek 2, you know, before, um, you know, Puss comes along to help. Like a good prequel. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it does. So you have, it loosely follows the story of Puss in Boots, but only very, very loosely. <laughs> uh, in which you have, you know, Puss, played by Antonio Banderas, has to save his town from evil forces with the help of Kitty Softpaws, played by Summer Hayek, and uh, Humpty Dumpty, played by Zach Galifianakis from The Hangover films, who's sort of turning up in everything at the moment. I mean, on the surface, you could accuse it of sort of flogging a dead horse because the third and fourth Shrek films really did run the series into the ground. Yeah. I really like the first two. I think the but first... Puss in Boots was one of the great characters, though. He was. I mean, there's that sort of introduction where he sort of does the swashbuggling <coughs> and then sort of breaks down and yeah. coughs up a hairball. I, mean, I, I yes. won't do that part of the impression, but that is yeah. very funny. So, but, so you could, on the surface, accuse it of flogging a dead horse because, like I said, the third and fourth Shrek films were... They felt like they were being majors for the money. But this is actually pretty good fun. It's not... No, massively substantial. It's but one of the things that I like about Puss in Boots is the fact that it doesn't take itself as seriously as the latest Shrek films did because you got the sense that by the time they got to the third, they were more concerned with being sort of arch and postmodern yeah. than they were with actually being funny. Whereas for the first two films, they got the blend absolutely yeah. right. I think the voice cast is very good. I like um, the fact that you know it, it's sort of playful and funny. I think that Antonio Banderas is. I mean, it's interesting that having sort of gone back to serious acting with Pedro Almodovar, he's chosen to do this so soon after, but he's clearly having fun. And, no, if you take, if Hugo's not showing near you anytime soon, then Puss in Boots will do very nicely. It'll be a good Christmas hit, I should think. I think it will take a lot of money, yes. Right. One that looks possibly as the Christmas turkey is going to be New Year's Eve. Yeah, a new film by Gary Marshall, who uh, started off his career as the director of Pretty Woman, which, um, when we... That's a good start. Well, yeah, I think Pretty Woman is the, it's the dictionary definition of a decent film, because it's, yes. it's all right, but there's nothing massively memorable about it. And I'll, I'll tell this story again about, um... The story about Pretty Woman is quite interesting. It was written by G.D. By Athens, who started out as the, the writer of um, a great little horror satire called Piranha Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, which is a satire of feminism starring Bill Maher, in which you have a group of uh, feminist cannibals in the jungle who are warring because one group wants to eat men with papaya and the other one wants yeah. to eat them with avocado. So it's a <laughs> little satire. So then, that he, so it's interesting how sort of Pretty Woman came out of sort of exploitation yeah. in, the long, in the long run. But since Pretty Woman, he has effectively gone downhill quite sharply his last film was valentine's day which was in sort of love actually without the structure or the discipline and that's saying something i mean do you want to run off some of the cast lists so we can get a rough idea yes indeed uh, i've got it here it is effectively a guest yes. list film uh halle berry uh john bon jovi yeah. robert de niro uh jessica beale abigail breslin josh Dolhamel. Yes, that, I, uh, I think it's I think it's but it doesn't it, it doesn't particularly matter. I mean, it's essentially you have a bunch of famous people, and there is a a series of loosely intertwining stories, all set on yeah. New Year's Eve, and the idea of you know what do you hope to be, what do you regret doing in the last year, yeah. will you find love, all that sort of thing. I mean, it's basically rubbish. I mean. 
if you're going to do big cast names, snow character drama with intertwining stories, I mean, you have to ha be someone with, well, if you want to do it light-heartedly, you have to have the sort of the writing talent of Richard Curtis, because as, yeah. as shambolic a director as Richard Curtis is in terms of assembling a story, write, yeah. he can write very young. Yeah. For all the shambolic things that are wrong with Love Actually, yeah. there are individual moments which are well written, like the moment where Emma Thompson goes off and has a private nervous breakdown, and would say, yeah. no, it's, it's, a, it's a little tiny scene, but it almost makes the rest of the film worthwhile. Or if you uh, look at the other end of it, I mean, you look at something like Robert Altman's films in which you do things like Nashville or particularly yeah. Gosford Park which is a who's who of British actors oh, you know, wasn't it? Yes. Christopher Scott Thomas, yes. Stephen Fry, Michael Gambon, all yeah. those sort of people but the reason that film work is not because you spent your time going it's famous people let's see if they do anything interesting yeah. but these are loads and loads of three-dimensional very complex very yeah. conflicted characters who just happen to be played by famous people let's see yes. what they do whereas this is just it's it's symptomatic of the way that modern Hollywood works, which is we don't need a story, we don't need themes, we don't need substance. Let's just get a load of famous brand names, pick yeah. the day, and get a good title, and it'll take money. And it's 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 shoddy and it's lazy, and it deserves to take nothing at all. It will obviously take a lot of money because of the star power involved, but it's just rubbish. So the consensus opinion on Rotten Tomatoes: shally, shall, shally, shallow, sappy, and dull. Assembles a star-studied cast for no discernible purpose. Yes, there was a wonderful review by Roger Ebert as well. He said, now, how is it possible to get a, a, a cast of two dozen fantastic people and find nothing to do with any of them? Next one is A Very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Which is the latest in the Harold and Kumar uh, stable of uh, modern-day stoner comedies. The most famous, I think, is probably Harold and Kumar Gets the Munchies, which has been repeated on late-night TV loads and loads of times. Um, this is their first installment in 3D. The story is the Harold and Kumar, played by John Cho and Cal Penn. They, uh, they get stoned and they accidentally torch uh, Harold's father's-in-law, Harold's father-in-law's prized Christmas tree, so they have to go <laughs> off through the streets of New York to right. find a new one before Christmas Day, and in the meantime they end up getting stoned, going to parties, trying to get laid, and running into Neil Patrick Harris playing a sort of lip-curling version of himself. Neil Patrick Harris was uh, in Starship Troopers, famously enough, the Paul Verhoeven yeah. film. No, for a stoner comedy, I mean, you, you, you feel a little bit dejected on the one hand because you, you felt like, okay, we, we sort of went through the, the stoner comedy wave with sort of Cheech and Chong in the late 70s, do we really need to do it again? Yeah. But unlike something like Pineapple Express, which was sort of trying to be an action film and a buddy comedy romance as well, with this you know exactly what you're going to get, which is sort of an hour and a half or two hours of two people sort of pretending to get stoned and going around parties and behaving yeah. in sort of a loudish, bad taste way. So for doing what it says on the tin, it just about passes the muster. I mean, they are... Some of the set pieces in it, in the trailer especially, are quite funny, like there's a sort of manipulation of 3D where they do beer pong and it sort of bounces around uh, the room and then goes into the cup. Like that moment in um, the Red Dwarf episode, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, where uh, Danny John Jules does a trick shot with yeah. the gun and it hits Crichton on the head about 100 yards away. Um, so, for the set pieces it's quite good and they do sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing with the 3D of saying, you know, 3D is the future and then deliberately waving their hands <laughs> up and then going, what are you doing? Nobody's looking at you. Sorry. Um, so I think that it's the sort of film, and this is an, a sort of backhanded compliment, the more drunk you are, the more you'll enjoy it. <laughs> right. But if you're looking for sort of trashy Friday or Saturday night viewing with the lads, then it will definitely serve its purpose, and I dare say it will find an audience on DVD as well. Our next one, which has a an inter very interesting plot to it, is Another Earth. Yeah, it's a science fiction film. Um, it's interesting that, we, that I chose Event Horizon for this week, because this is another film that effectively looks back to Solaris. Um, it's directed by Mike Cahill, 
Uh, stars Britt Marling, and it won a prize at the Sundance Film Festival uh, either last year or earlier this year. Um, the story follows a relationship between uh, Rhoda Williams, played by Marling, who is a, an astrophysics student at MIT, which you know, is an American university, for those who don't know, uh, and a composer called uh, John Burroughs, played by uh, William Mapother, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, he's married, and his wife is expecting a child. Their lives are completely turned upside down when they find a duplicate version of Earth has moved into the orbit. And uh, there's a sequence in the trailer of the President of the United States attempting to make contact and then her own voice comes back at her on the radio because the deal is it's not just duplicated in terms of the, the rocks and so forth. Yeah. All, the, all people the people yeah. on the Earth are exactly the same. So they get, these two characters get intertwined, they start having a romantic relationship and they're offered the chance to effectively go to the other Earth to sort of leave their old lives behind yeah. and begin anew. So it does link back to the idea sort of in the ending of Solaris where the, the astronaut goes down onto the planet and even fully mindful of the fact that it isn't going to work because the planet isn't Earth. Yeah. The fact that he can be with, that he can live the life that he always wanted with the apparitions of his wife and child yeah. is somehow more comforting to him than staying on the spaceship and slowly going mad out of loneliness. And no, it is an interesting idea, I and mean, the symbolism is quite clear. You know, the other Earth represents the, the what if. What if yeah. I'd fallen in love with this man? What if I'd done this sooner? Yeah. What, all those sorts of things. So it, the symbolism is quite clear. And it is sort of indie-spirited, and the soundtrack is a little too kooky for its own good. But if you buy into the central conceit, it's surprisingly decent. Yeah, it's, uh, it just sounded looked fascinating. It does. I mean, I thought. think it's, depending on your view of sort of sundancy productions, you'll either sort of really find yourself going with it, or you'll find it a little bit navel-gazing. But I'm, you know, as someone who's not the biggest fan of Sundance, I did find myself going with the trailer. Okay. Finally, a bit of art house for this week is Mysteries of Lisbon. Yeah. And you're going to have to do the pronunciations. I'm not even going to attempt it. Okay. There's not many that I'll attempt, because uh, my Portuguese isn't that strong. Uh, it's the new film by Raul Ruiz, I think, uh, who... Uh, Very good. Thank you. Um, which won a couple of prizes at the Toronto Film Festival. It's the adaptation of a 19th century novel by uh, Camillo Castello Branco, and it follows a young boy called... Uh, this is where it gets coming. Jao, I think, uh, who is the illegitimate son of two aristocrats who have sort of fallen in love but are forbidden to get married because they're betrothed to other people. And it follows him sort of trying to track down his parentage across events in three decades spanning four countries and there's all sorts of intertwining love stories with the supplementary characters. Um, it's been compared to the work of um, Victor Hugo and Charles Dickens and there is a comparison with Great Expectations because you know, the whole thing of Great Expectations is it's about a young boy trying to find his benefactor yeah. and going through the aristocracy and falling foul of Miss Havisham along the way. <laughs> Whereas in this it's you know, a, a young boy sort of mingling with the aristocracy yeah. and trying to find out is, does he belong in this area. It's raised eyebrows because it has a running time of four and a half hours. Uh, yeah. Which is a long sitting. I mean, there have been longer theatrical releases. Like there, was, there was a gangster film not so long ago called Carlos, in which the, the original theatrical cut was like something like 100 minutes, but the director's cut was five hours. I hope it's an ice cream break. Uh, there, sh there should be something along those lines, because something like Gone with the Wind's got an intermission, yeah. so they might sort of bring it in. Um, I think it's the sort of thing that would have worked better as a miniseries, in the same way that yeah. all the best Dickens adaptations, are, with the exception of David Lean's film, are sort of on, on, on television, yeah. because the episodic soap opera structure does work, and I yeah. actually might watch the Bleak House adaptation again this Christmas because that was really great. Um, so I, I don't think there's any massive need to see it in cinemas. If you go the distance with it on DVD, you'll probably find something interesting in it. But it is a bit too long. Yes. So recommendations. Then. Well, I think Puss in Boots for the children and yeah. uh, another Earth. And the not-so-children. Yes, and uh, another Earth if you want something a little more indie-spirited. 
Sounds good. Right, well, thank you very much. It's Christmas next week. It is. So get your, uh, your favourite um, Christmas films through to us. Yeah. And uh, also, if you have any thoughts, favourite films of this year, or maybe the real turkeys, we'll uh, yeah, sort of send, talk send, about one or two of them. Send in a best and a worst, and yes. I'll, I'll do my own top ten rundown and uh, a, a few turkeys. I won't rant excessively, I'll promise. No. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> There's one film we have to remember not to mention in that case. Right. <laughs> Take us to the news. A little bit of Alid Jones. Walking in the air. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.